Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and you are about to listen to my analysis slash review and thoughts about the album Wormwood by the Acacia Strain. And I just want to say right off the top that this episode deals with some pretty intense subject matter, including violence, mass shootings, serial killers, and stuff like that. If you're the kind of person that doesn't like listening to true crime podcasts or that type of subject matter personally affects you or upsets you, I would heavily recommend you skip this episode. But for everybody else, settle in because this is going to be one terrifying episode. I've done about 33 episodes of this podcast so far, and if there's one theme, it's been positive change. Well, except for one notable exception. The family van was not working, and that it wouldn't start. Sometimes shit just fucking sucks. And I think there's no point to simply existing for existence sake like what are we even doing if we're not trying to find the good in this world full of bad and i do try and find the good whenever i can i want to be better and i want the world to be a better place and i think that there's a lot of good out there already but for this episode i just want to forget all of that because i want to talk about wormwood by the acacia strain I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking, strangely enough, about the environments that we were both born into. And I explained that I felt like I was born into a hostile environment. From day one, based on life decisions that my parents made, I feel like I was kind of set up to be ridiculed and rejected by my peers, which is kind of a tough pill to swallow, but sometimes reality is just what it is. And it's not some idealized or simplified version of itself. The simplified version is much easier to process, but cold, harsh reality isn't quite so easy. And I think that's the appeal of an album like Wormwood by the Acacia Strain. It functions as a really brutal reminder of how the universe really works and what it's really capable of. I grew up in the 90s, and even though my family and I lived somewhat removed from regular American society at the time, we still sometimes saw and experienced the same kind of fear that the rest of the country was experiencing. And there's one particular phrase that my mom used to throw around all the time when we would hear about a crime or a kidnapping or a murder or a shooting. She would always say the same thing. She would say, Danny, I just can't believe that somebody would do something like this. And I always thought that was wild because we heard about that kind of stuff literally all the time. Every week, 
We didn't even have a TV, but the news still got to us anyway. And over time, I couldn't figure out why my mom couldn't believe something because that stuff kept happening over and over and over again. And it got me thinking about my own experiences dealing with other people in my early life. And I called it a hostile environment a minute ago, and I really believe that. I dealt with rejection really hard. Like, go back and listen to my corn episode for a little bit more info on that. And as a matter of fact, this episode essentially functions as a sequel to that episode. But this time I'm not going to focus so much on myself, because my experiences are pretty light in comparison to the kind of horrors and harshness that this dirt sphere that we're living on is actually capable of producing. And I think that Wormwood is the perfect guide for delving into those depths. Wormwood starts off really strong with a song called Beast. And it's not just a clever name. Faint dissonance gives way to a distorted voice saying predictably horrible things. And then we're just slammed into the ground with brutal riffs and brutal vocals, courtesy of vocalist Vincent Bennett. And also on this song, uh, Jamie Josta of Hatebreed. And at the start of the song, he screams, we all come from broken homes, broken hearts, and broken bones. We will live and die alone. Welcome to the end. Tonight we descend. We might not be enemies, but we cannot be friends. But that's just hardcore lyrics, right? But they kind of start taking a dark turn pretty quickly when he says, I want to take my final breath, knowing you died a painful death. The fucking world is an ugly place, but I will die with a smile on my face. So at this point in the song, you're going to find out whether or not you're the kind of person who nods your head and agrees with that kind of thing, or if you're the kind of person who quote-unquote can't believe that somebody would say something like that. Okay, before we get too deep into this, yes, I am totally aware of what shock value is and the concept of somebody being an edgelord. This isn't my first heavy album, but I want to attempt to make a case that Vincent's lyrics are more than just that. And I'll also refer to a narrator in this episode a lot, but don't get confused and infer that I actually think that Vincent Bennett is some kind of unhinged psychopath. I know that he's not, and this explanation probably isn't necessary for most of you, but I also don't feel like being nitpicked to death after I put this episode out. So I'm just taking the lyrics at their word for the sake of analysis. Okay, back at it. I think this song sets the precedence really well for what we can expect from this record going forward. So if you're new to the Acacia Strain, typically they play this wonderful blend of groovy death metal and metalcore with like some straight up hardcore moments thrown in there. And it gets so heavy that it actually borderlines on deathcore, even if the band themselves would not describe themselves as deathcore. But I mean, breakdowns are heavier than a lot of the deathcore bands out there. However, for me, the defining characteristic of this band is their overly negative and overly nihilistic lyrics. I think the idea of us all coming from broken homes with broken hearts and broken bones is the first real harsh truth that comes to light on this album. Because it's so true and relatable. Like, sure, I tell stories sometimes about how horrible my life can be, 
but somebody out there has it way worse. And some people didn't even make it, which is something that we're going to get into a little bit later. And I love how that relatability is so quickly turned on its head when you realize that the narrator you just related to reveals a horrific worldview. A worldview where murder is the thing that makes him happy. Your death brings this person pleasure. messed up right but i think the point it drives home is that we all come from the same hostile origin point right if one human is capable of something horrible aren't we all capable of it and maybe you're thinking no dude that's not me but let's just let's keep going with it for a little bit at my work we have this big 60 inch tv in our break room and I usually shamble in there for my lunch break around 11 or 11.30 every day. And it's ironically when almost everybody else is there too. Like nobody goes on lunch after 12. You, you go at 11 because that's the earliest time that it's socially acceptable for you to go to lunch. And my coworkers like to watch a weird mix of slap fighting videos, fail videos, and reality TV. And reality TV has always been divisive with TV watchers around the globe. And I'll spare my tirade about how reality TV isn't actually reality, and it presents a very scripted narrative that is spread out over a whole season. Reality isn't scripted. Oh, wait, my, I do script these episodes. Does that make them not real, too? The thing is, though, is that people who love it absolutely love it. And conversely, the people who don't love it absolutely fucking hate it and i've never met a person who thinks that reality tv shows are just okay so while i don't specifically know what reality tv star the song the hills have eyes is aimed at i get a few impressions from reading the lyrics i know that there was a reality tv show called the hills that was popular around the time this album came out and i even watched the music video for the song to try to get some kind of clue but the video was more of a comedic take on the show How to Catch a Predator, and it's a great video. Lots of energy. There's, like, a prison yard and, and cops, and it's it's actually, like, funny, but also, like, weird and creepy and scary, and that's just kind of what you get with the Acacia Strain. But this song takes no time kicking the album into high gear with the now iconic opening phrase, I can't take your fucking faces before it launches into this raging tirade that culminates in my favorite phrase on the album. He says, Now you're a Christian, and she's a beauty queen. I hope you die together. Your lives are jokes to me. And if this album had a thesis statement, that's it.
I'd say it's a pretty strong reaction, though, towards somebody that the narrator doesn't even know personally. But in modern day, in 2023, I hear people say the same types of things about celebrities, reality TV stars, politicians, activists, people of other religions. And so if humans on a global scale deem that kind of hate as socially acceptable, why is hatred directed at an individual like somebody that you know deemed as unacceptable? And I don't actually know the answer, but the thought is interesting. And I've always been intrigued by where this large-scale hate towards celebrities actually comes from. And to try to explain it, I want to highlight some lyrics from the song Bottom Feeder, which seems to be more directed at a specific person that the narrator actually knows. And I, and I could be wrong about that. I always take my lyrical interpretations with a, with a grain of salt. It's just what I think the song's about. In Bottom Feeder, he says, Your life just fucking disgusts me. No need for you to disgust me. I understand exactly why you don't trust me. I find you fucking disgusting. And I've always considered myself to be a good person. You know, with quotation marks. I think everybody does. From early childhood, we're all taught to play well with other people. And it's natural to want other people to like us. And this motivates us to seek approval from other people. But one of the harsh realities about life is that we simply can't get approval or admiration from every single person we meet. No matter how popular you are and how many friends you have, there's always going to be somebody out there that absolutely hates everything that you're about. Sometimes it's a coworker or somebody in your church or maybe even somebody in your family. But we always try to explain it, don't we? By saying it's out of jealousy. They're just jealous, man. Or even like more sugar-coated, it's all because of a misunderstanding. If that person really knew me like my friends know me, they would like me. And it's too hard to like be conscious and aware that sometimes people just hate you for their own reasons. And it isn't really anything that you did. And there's not really anything that you can do right. Right? Because if you if you completely change everything about yourself to get a person to like you, number one, they're probably not actually going to end up liking you. And it'll end up alienating the people that do like you. But the thought of somebody hating you for seemingly no reason is kind of terrifying. So we try our best to just ignore it. It's easier that way. And the way that it ties into hatred towards celebrities is that if somebody hates you in a small group of people, imagine how that kind of hate scales when you're known on a national level. Going back to the Hills Have Eyes again for a minute, he says, the world will celebrate your fall from grace. Half the world wants to spit in your face. And that's highlighting the fact that people love to see celebrities fail. And in a way, I think that's kind of more messed up because it's totally acceptable to shit talk a celebrity when something bad happens to them. You know, kick them while they're down. 
rain on their parade because they deserve it, right? That popularity comes at a price. And that price is is that the world is going to celebrate your failures. And the fact that that kind of behavior is totally normal makes me question the actual morality of our society. And not that any of this is like a surprise. And maybe right now you're thinking, that isn't me. I don't act that way. But does that actually feel like the truth? There really isn't anybody that you can think of. Celebrity or personal that you just can't stand. Somebody that is so idealistically different from you that it's actually hard for you to humanize them. Just think on that. And let's move on to something a little bit less relatable. The fourth song on the album, Ramirez, is probably Wormwood's most infamous song. It's a fast-paced barn burner of a song that opens up with a short pick scrape that gives way to riffs and breakdowns just as heavy as the song's subject matter. The lyrics seem to be based around or at least inspired by the serial killer Ricardo Richard Ramirez, who's more commonly known as the Night Stalker. And Ramirez was a serial killer and rapist who murdered 13 people and sexually assaulted 11 people in a year-long spree from the summer of 1984 through the summer of 1985. And Ramirez was known for making his victims swear to Satan that they didn't have any more valuables in their house while he was ransacking their homes and killing and assaulting them. And I know in the world of true crime podcasts and even just the news in general, we've become a little bit desensitized by crime statistics and body counts. But just imagine for a minute what 13 people standing in a room actually looks like. And then think about the fact that a single person is the person that killed them all. just hits differently whenever you look at it that way and Ramirez was a completely deranged drug addict and a psychopath obviously there's no real moral explanation for his actions and typically when dealing with serial killers and other mass murderers it's easier to simplify it by saying that well some people are just born evil and while I think that's true in some cases one we'll get into a little bit later in this episode. What fascinates me about this song and Ramirez's case is that in the 2007 book Personality Disordered Patients, Treatable and Untreatable by Michael H. Stone, he describes Ramirez as a made psychopath versus him being a born psychopath, meaning that Ramirez, if brought up in early life under different conditions, could have been completely normal whatever normal means. The lyrics of the song read, I want to see the pieces fit into place. I want to feel your body temperature drop. 
I want to feel the wind against my face. I want to hear your heart stop. I have a pretty good idea of how the fuck you're going to die. We fear what we don't understand. And I am afraid of everything. He has no empathy, no compassion for the rest of the world, and especially other people. And later on in the song, he says, I wanted to tell her I felt it in my heart, but I have no heart to feel. I wanted to let them know that I stole my soul, but I have no soul to steal. I believe that hell is real. Hell is other people. I'm a burning building, and you can't save me. And this is not the kind of relatable hatred that I was talking about earlier. This is something completely different and probably pretty alien to most of us. It's just pure shock value. But the real shock to me comes from knowing that a seemingly normal born human being could be capable of that kind of evil just because of the environment that they grew up in. I did a little bit of reading up on Ramirez before doing this episode, and it was interesting to read that a lot of his interest in violence and Satanism came from an older sibling who was also really into that stuff, and how over time and exposure, instead of being shocked by the horrible stories and the horrible things that this older sibling had done, Ramirez was just fascinated by it. And it makes you wonder if Ramirez had grown up in a normal home if the outcome potentially could have been different. There's no real way to know, but it's just interesting to think about. And as the song Beast pointed out, we all come from broken homes, broken hearts, and broken bones. And what that tells me is that any human being is capable of any action under the right circumstances. And this makes it hard to feel secure on this planet at all, knowing that anybody could do anything to anyone. Even though my will and my motivation is noble, to me at least, it doesn't guarantee that anyone else's is. And this is also why I don't understand why people are so shocked to where they quote-unquote can't believe that these horrific acts happen with so much frequency. There's a lot of people in the world, and if anybody, you get it. Even the judge who sentenced Ramirez remarked that his crimes exhibited cruelty callousness and viciousness beyond any human understanding. And even though this song is based on somebody who killed a lot of people, it's also, strangely enough, related to something else horrible that happened. On August 4th, 2019, in Dayton, Ohio, a 24-year-old named Connor Betts murdered nine people and wounded 17 other people, shooting an AM-15 right outside the entrance of a bar, which happened to be only 13 hours after another mass shooting in El Paso, Texas. But for sure, let's all be super surprised by all of this. Hey guys, it's me again with the little punch in. I hope I'm not coming across as like indifferent to the absolute amount of suffering and loss that is associated with these events. I'm just trying to illustrate a point, but rest assured that I absolutely do care about how these kinds of things affect victims and their families. 
those details absolutely do matter to me. And I know that it's a lot to take in. But I do deeply care about these kind of things. Okay, we'll go back in. The odd connection here is that the shooter was reported to be wearing an Acacia Strain hoodie with lyrics to the song Ramirez written all over it. And upon hearing this, Vincent Bennett took to social media and tweeted this. What happened in Dayton is horrifying. Even more so to know that the shooter was wearing a Acacia Strain hoodie, and it's making me sick. There's no excuse for this. Anyone who knows anything knows that we don't condone this behavior. No one has the right to take another's life. And later he tweeted, Music is an outlet. Music should purify. Use art as a positive outlet to your negative emotions. If you feel angry, turn to music, turn to creation. This has to stop. But of course, despite him saying all of this, the non-music-related media outlets had a field day. Once they started digging deeper into the band's lyrics, and I can say as a fan that I've always interpreted their lyrics as a critique on society and as a catharsis for anger, which is what this episode is for me, a way to try to explain why I find these kinds of topics so interesting. It's not because I want to recreate them. I just think I'm trying to make sense of why I'm still shocked and surprised by some of these events. Even though I consider myself to be a little bit world-weary, every now and again, something takes me completely by surprise. And, and I hate that feeling. But this is also an example of how we try to simplify things, right? We can't explain why a mass shooting happens. We can't process it, so we simplify it. Oh, he was wearing a metal band's hoodie. So, you know, obviously this band must have inspired this person to do this thing. Because that explains it wraps it up in a nice little box and doesn't actually address anything. Wow, we're only on the fourth song, but I'm not even close to being done talking about this album. But for the sake of time, I'm going to move ahead by a few songs. But don't sleep on the song Nightman and The Impaler. Those two songs like really emphasize the stellar production quality on this album. I always kind of worry about clean-sounding heavy records because sometimes that rawness can be a little bit lost in the translation. But that's very much not the case on Wormwood. It's probably one of the heaviest records in my collection. And the bigger budget treatment of the recording really paid off in spades here. Now we come to my absolute favorite song on this record, Jonestown. This is coincidentally also the very first song I ever heard by the Acacia Strain. And it's no secret to anybody that listens to my podcast that Jonestown is a subject that I've always had a great interest in. I remember I had just finished listening to the last podcast on the Left series on Jonestown and I wanted to hear more Jonestown-related media. And so I was Googling Jonestown in popular media, and this song came up. And I remember being super stoked because, number one, it's an amazing song. It's very heavy, very groovy, and the breakdown at the end is world-shattering. But Jonestown is one of those subjects that people also just can't believe took place. And it's fascinating to study, but ultimately frustrating to talk to other people about because of how misrepresented it has been over the years. 
If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'll try to give you the short version, although I could talk about this subject for a very long time. So if that's something that you want to hear, uh, maybe I'll throw something up on Patreon going into a, a little bit more detail about it because just talking about Jonestown isn't exactly music-related, but uh, here's the quote-unquote short version. On November 18th, 1978, a group of 900 people died under somewhat confusing circumstances in the South American jungle of Guyana in a settlement called Jonestown. And the people involved were members of a U.S.-based cult called People's Temple, which was led by a man named Jim Jones. Jones started off as a Christian preacher in Indianapolis in the early 1960s, and he was very outspoken about racial equality and civil rights. And his church built nursing homes, they made free restaurants, soup kitchens, they ran drug rehabilitation programs, they helped homeless people get off the street. And one of their biggest pushes was trying to racially integrate restaurants and other public places within the city. And in addition to this humanitarian work, he also did some weirder things, though, like he had church services that featured faith healings and things like that. And the strange thing about Jones is that his message eventually evolved from plain Jane Christianity to weird forms of spiritualism to him at one point actually claiming to be God. But to his closest followers, he was pretty open about actually being an atheist. His main belief that he professed was socialism. And eventually, he relocated the church to California, where they continued this humanitarian work. But behind the scenes, Jones was reported to be extremely manipulative, abusive, and a sexual predator. In an attempt to be everything to everyone, Jones would usually cater his message to match whatever worldview you had. But this actually worked pretty effectively because he wasn't just a con man, because his devoted followers flat out worshipped him. And some of them even thought that he was clairvoyant and that he could heal people and bring them back from the dead. And this was despite him like very obviously asking people to turn over almost all of their possessions and all of their earnings to the church. And he had them devote nearly all of their time to working in the temple's outreach programs. And at night, Jones would hold really, really long church services where he would plan with his inner circle. And sometimes he even held like public catharsis sessions with members who had broken the rules. And he would like subject them to public beatings and ridicule. And if that doesn't sound like something that's fun, one of the biggest things people always say is, oh, well, why didn't they just leave? Well, it was because Jones made it nearly impossible for anybody to actually leave the organization without being subject to constant threats and harassment. Because I guess in Jones' mind, the more people that got out would, would you know tell other people about this stuff. And eventually that's what ended up happening is in 1977, this scathing expose was published featuring interviews with former members of the church speaking out and bringing all of this behind the scenes stuff into the limelight. So Jones convinced hundreds of his followers that the church was being persecuted for their beliefs and that they should retreat to the promised land with him. And the promised land was an agricultural project in South America, in Guyana, where People's Temple had leased like 3,000 acres of land back in 1976. And earlier I said that 900 people died under confusing circumstances because 
there's not actually a lot of concrete evidence about what actually occurred in Jonestown on November 18th, 1978. The only real evidence we have is the aftermath of the event, as well as this 45-minute audio recording made by Jones during the massacre called the Death Tape. In fear of an impending invasion from an unclear source, Jones attempted to plead and manipulate his followers into believing that their time was up, and the only way to avoid a worse fate than death was that they should all make the decision to commit revolutionary suicide, as he put it and that it was going to make some kind of statement to the rest of the world. And I'm sure some of the followers willingly drank the cyanide-laced fruit drink, but the people that resisted were either forced at gunpoint to drink it, or they were forcefully injected with poison. And this is especially gut-wrenching when you realize that a large percentage of the population were babies and small children who'd had really no idea what was happening. And when the carnage was discovered later, Jones was found among the dead with a seemingly self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And there's so much more to this story, and I would encourage you to dig into it if you find it interesting. Um, I say that because most people have heard of Jonestown, but for some reason in popular culture, the entire history of this event is usually summed up with one simple phrase. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. And this ties back to a few of my thoughts from earlier in this episode, specifically the idea that any human is capable of anything good or anything bad under the right circumstances. And Jim Jones is a perfect example of somebody who was clearly a psychopath, but had the potential to do a lot of good as well as evil. And it's fascinating because I'm always trying to figure out if the bad things that he did outweighed the good things that he did. Because with your run-of-the-mill serial killer, this is usually a pretty easy calculation, but Jones stands out as unique because he could move seamlessly between selflessness and extreme selfishness and egotism at the drop of a hat. The same hand who could feed the poor and the helpless could also administer death to the poor and helpless. And the thing is, is that we all have the potential to make those kind of choices, don't we? The other part that I find disturbing is society's way of simplifying actions and events in order for them to make sense and to fit a certain narrative. It's easier to think that a bunch of nutbags followed their king nutbag into the jungle and committed suicide just because he told them to. And this ignores the origins of the cult itself because this church was actually made up of well-meaning people who truly believed that their leader was a good man who cared about them as well as the rest of the world. And it was the fact that Jim Jones was a great humanitarian that caused them to ignore some of his more unpleasant quirks. And I truly believe that on November 18th, 1978, it was a shock to a lot of them when they realized a little too late that Jones was in fact their enemy and that the love that he showed for the world was in reality a deep-seated hatred for it, himself, and everyone else.
The lyrics of the song read, Today's the day you see the consequence. May you never wake up again. We will choke the ones we love. Your admiration means nothing to us. When push comes to fucking shove, we never do what's expected of us. We all want to be a part of something, but I swear you want none of this. We live our lives afraid to die, but these dreams are selfish. I hate everything you love. Okay, so that's a lot of negativity shoved into one episode. And you might be thinking right now, Dan, why are you talking about all this stuff? And why do you seem so fascinated with these types of topics? And the answer is it's complicated. So when I was a kid, I was constantly afraid, mostly of intangible things. Myself and my older siblings were not only subjected to the daily news of murders, kidnappings, bombings, shootings, or whatever. But we were also told by the church that we attended that these were signs of the end times and that this was all evidence that we lived in a fallen world. So I grew up terrified of the end times, terrified that the world was going to end before I grew up, and terrified of other intangible things like demons, hellfire, and eternal separation from God. And that fear manifested itself in the form of anxiety and panic attacks, which I've talked about before. It's a horrible feeling walking through life in a default state of fear. So at some point, I took the common advice to face my fears. I decided to start educating myself on these horrible events and try to figure out what they mean and how the behaviors and motives of monsters are maybe not so different than the behaviors and mindsets of regular people. It's just that their actions are more outwardly extreme. And it was that relatability and understanding that actually ended up lessening my fear. In the song Ramirez, the lyrics say, we fear what we don't understand. And I'm afraid of everything. And I think that's totally true. The more I educate myself the more I do understand. And while understanding is not the same thing as endorsement, it has the effect of me not being surprised when something awful happens. I was super jumpy and scared when I was young, but I'm now stronger and more prepared for what the world could potentially throw at me. And the knowledge that society doesn't create security makes me feel more secure, if that makes sense. And I think that ultimately is the message that Wormwood is conveying. And while it may be shocking and hard to digest, the ability to open up your eyes to the reality of a situation is actually a very good survival tactic. Because I don't want to be caught off guard. And I'll leave you with a clip from a Poison the Well song called Karchi Street from their Tear from the Red album. The song features a clip from the end of the movie Apocalypse Now, and it drives home the point that I'm trying to make so much more eloquently than I have in this episode. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this clip inside a clip. I've seen horrors. Horrors that you've seen. But you have no right to call me a murderer. You have a right to kill me. I have a right to do that. 
But you have no right to judge me. It's impossible through words to describe what is necessary to those who do not know what horror means. Horror. Horror has a face and you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. They are truly enemies. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of DFT's Dungeon. Like I said in the intro, my name is Daniel Terry, and I realized that episode was a lot to take in. It was very, very dark, and uh, it may not have been what you guys were expecting, but I've always found these types of topics very interesting, and they have actually been a very good coping mechanism for me in order to not be so afraid of literally everything. So I want to thank you guys so much for listening. If you guys like the podcast, please make sure you're subscribed to it. Leave it a review on your favorite podcasting app if it's the kind of app that allows you to leave a review. And uh, if you guys have any questions for me, you can send me an email at dftdungeon at gmail.com or you can hit me up on social media, DFT Dungeon on Facebook, DFT9000 on Twitter, or DFT Dungeon on Instagram. But the easiest and quickest way to get a hold of me is on the DFT Dungeon Discord server. We always joke that the dungeon is not, in fact, the podcast, but is actually the Discord server. So come on there and hang out with us, share some memes, talk about the episodes, talk about music. And I hope to see you guys on there soon, but if I don't, that's okay too, because you are going to see me here again next week. <laughs>